saying, There is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron, Hezron begot Ram, and Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz, and Boaz begot Obed. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. Let us pray. O Lord Christ, in your name we pray to the Father that he would glorify you, even in the preached word. We pray, Lord Jesus Christ, or I pray for your congregation, that you would fill them with faith and hope and love in you. Ask these things in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, we had a surprising message for some, and it is this. Loyal followers of Jesus Christ use the law as a wing to bring life into the world. I want to make a few observations about our passage today. I'm sure it seems a bit odd for us to to hear about a genealogy or to preach on a genealogy, but it's not odd. So let's make some observations about it and then a couple points of application. The first thing I want you to notice is that Naomi is blessed with another son by way of Ruth. They named him Obed. In a sense, this is the apex of the story for Naomi. All of the characters, as Brad pointed out in the confession, started off empty. And as we've moved through the story arc, they're full. And this is one of those times where we can see the fullness. Naomi was empty and bitter because she had lost her husbands and her sons. Even though bread came back into the house of bread, she came back into the house of bread without any family, and so was unpleasant. Here she has become pleasant, full and full again, because Ruth and Boaz have supplied her with a family that will continue to grow. That's the first thing I want you to notice. The second thing I want you to notice is that the story does not end there. It could have. That would have been a nice, happy ending. The woman who was unpleasant, bitter, empty, is now full and pleasant and sweet. It could have been a nice, rounded-out story, but we would then miss the heart of the story if we stopped. And so as we continue, the heart of the story is actually found within a genealogy. There are two different kinds of genealogies, at least within the scriptures. One kind of genealogy is for the purpose of showing a family tree or the ancestry so that I, for example, could point out which tribe or clan I belong to or to which I belong. But there is another kind of genealogy, and that is the one that we're dealing with this morning. The other kind of genealogy is for the purpose of legitimization and for emphasizing, therefore, the final person in the list. It's It's like a beacon of hope. Look at where all of this is leading is the subtext in this genealogy. And that is the kind of ancestry we have here. 
Do you see the final name that is given in verses 17 and verse 22? The last name is David. The last name in the list. There's great significance to that. So let's now make another observation, observation three. The final last name is the major point of the story of Ruth. None of them would be truly pleasant or truly full or truly escape the dark days of the judges unless the family line continued into the one who was promised to be anointed to begin the Davidic dynasty. And that is what we see here. Now, there are a lot of lessons throughout the book of Ruth, but this ends up being the main lesson. It all adds up to this final name. The loyalty of Naomi, the loyalty of Ruth, the loyalty of Boaz, they are all gathered together as instruments in the hands of the Redeemer and his loyalty, and he himself is using all of them in an honorable and dignified way to arrive at this very moment where his king is appointed and the dynasty has begun. It was the Davidic dynasty that would replace the dark days of the judges and would replace emptiness and fullness. If you get time, flip to when David's reign begins after Saul is put aside and look at the summary descriptions of David. It basically says, if I were to paraphrase it, all is right and pleasant in the land. It's after he removes the Philistines especially. That's the point, is the Davidic dynasty is going to take away the bitter and he's going to make this nation pleasant. All that you saw in the book of Judges is going to start being corrected with this anointed king. And so from those observations, we can have this doctrine before us this morning, this teaching, this lesson. And here it is. God uses the loyalty of the church in his plans to establish the Davidic Messiah who will bring peace to the whole world. Hear that again. God uses the loyalty of the church in his plans to establish a Davidic Messiah who will bring peace to the whole world. Now that needs some explanation, but I'd like to unfold that in just two points. And if you're taking notes, here you go. Other genealogies and our loyalties. We'll talk under those two headings today. Other genealogies and our loyalties. Let's begin with other genealogies so that you can understand. Listen real closely to that lesson again in my emphasis. God uses the loyalty of the church in his plans to establish a Davidic Messiah who will bring peace to the whole world. That should surprise you a little bit because we actually haven't established that the David that's in that genealogy would bring peace to the whole world. How can I expand the scope from the David of the, who influences Israel in the Old Testament to someone that influences the entire world? And that's where, when we start to try to answer that question, we find the answer in other genealogies that are given within our scriptures, specifically genealogies in the hands of the apostles. So I'd like you to actually, I hope you have your Bible with you today, uh, at least on your phone or something, but let's take a look at Matthew chapter 1 together. 
At another time, you can look at Luke chapter 3, but today we're just going to look at Luke, or at Matthew chapter 1. I want you to notice in verse 1, it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now take a look at verse number 3. Notice, this will just be a quick observation, notice that in verse 3 we see basically the same genealogy from Ruth ending with David in verse 6. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram, and Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon, and Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David, the king. You're interrupted there with that extra little word, the king. Now that is where Ruth ends. But notice that the apostles, in the hands of the apostles, as they gather everything up so that you could have the full explanation, they do not end the genealogy there. Notice that you have another paragraph that is going to take you through the Babylonian exile, and then you have another paragraph consummating in verse 16, and look at the last name given in the list. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Messiah, or Christ. Here you see a genealogy, and you could look in Luke 3 for the same thing. It'll have the same genealogy from Ruth. Here you see within the apostles' hands, they are using these genealogies to make a point that the narrator of Ruth was making about David, that they're making about Jesus, who is the Christ. Now, if you were to couple this with the very final words of, of Matthew, take a look at Matthew chapter 28 at the final paragraph. Y'all, some of you probably know this by heart. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Do you see what they're doing? Do you see that these are bookends making the same proclamation about the identity of who Jesus is and the point of all of the Gospels? What we witness is that the apostles used genealogies to show that Jesus is the new and the final Davidic Messiah. His kingdom will not be confined to a single locale called Israel, but spreads out over the whole world and across every nation. If you understand what Matthew's doing with the genealogies and the end of his gospel and what Luke is doing in chapter 3 with his genealogy, that is the message. That is the declaration, at least part of the declaration and proclamation of the Christian faith. Jesus Christ is the king whom God installed to be a wing to the whole world, taking away the emptiness and bitterness of every nation and giving them fullness and joy. And you are his follower. And Charles, 
was baptized into his name. Showing that Jesus Christ, even here this day, has taken emptiness and made it full in your very presence. Dryness and gave it rain. That is the Christian message that is being proclaimed when we see throughout the whole canon these connections. Now, those are the other genealogies. And that's why within our doctrine I can say that he is going to bring health and wholeness to the whole world and not just a locale called Israel. Because the true and the final Davidic Messiah is Jesus, who has been given authority not just over somewhere in the the Far East, but over every tribe and over every nation, over the whole world. If you want to see extra proof of that, look at the reading in your bulletin from Peter's sermon. Peter is just saying the same thing. It's not that David. He's dead and buried. It's this one that David himself saw in a prophetic vision, and he wrote down, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. It was a vision of the eternal Christ. Now, those are the other genealogies and the message of them, and that's the main emphasis of this book. The second thing I want to point out is not just other genealogies, but our loyalties. While we wait for Christ to return and bring all things into completion, please do not forget another major emphasis in the book of Ruth all the way to the end. And that is that God still uses the loyalty of the church to accomplish his ends. That has not stopped just because a David has been born. Protestants within our tradition are sometimes confused about this, which is why I keep beating on this drum. Due to misunderstanding, sometimes modern Reformed Protestants can be frightened to talk about the significance of our actions in today's world. They fear that we might fall into a works righteousness or something. That's okay. Don't fall into a works righteousness. But at the same time, don't give up our doctrine of the importance of what Christ is doing through us by way of his spirit. We must continue, even according to the message of Ruth, to ascribe meaning and power to our agency and our actions. Let me just give you an example. This is actually the next book we're going to hear a sermon series from. It's Titus, as we learn what it looks like to have life in the church. Titus 2, 11 through 14. Listen to this. I'm just going to give you um, part of that, but listen to this. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if you missed the point, here it is again. He gave himself for us. Why? That he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify himself, his own special people, who are zealous for good works. That is also the message of Ruth, is that there is a group of people who are zealous for good works. He did not say 
that we are just a people who look to the future and do nothing as we wait for Jesus to return. We are a people who are meant to be zealous for good works as we wait for the hope of the future. Now, why? Why would we do such a thing? Well, we gain some insight from another of Paul's teachings. And this is from 1 Corinthians 15. I'd really encourage you to meditate on that whole section. It is a huge teaching on resurrection. And then it's very interesting that Paul follows up his teaching on resurrection by focusing on your works and agency in the world. And this is what he says about it. He says, after talking about new life springing out of us by way of the Spirit, being raised from the dead, he says, this is what's on his mind. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why would I want to do that if it made no difference? Because, Paul says, you should know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Paul does not say, just keep looking out on the horizon. And wait for Jesus because you know what? Your actions don't really matter. Don't you know God is sovereign? Nothing you do matters. That's not a biblical message. Paul says that your labor is not in vain, which is an invocation of God's sovereignty and within his total control. He establishes your will and your agency that he has given to you in the Spirit. And his whole point is that our loyalty, our loyal labor, your loyal labor is not in vain, even in what he is trying to accomplish with the renewal of the entire world. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that when your young child takes apart that peanut butter and jelly sandwich and he throws the peanut butter half and sticks to the wall, that when you clean that peanut butter up in that sandwich, somehow God and his sovereignty is going to take that good work and righteous act and use it as a means to the completion of justice across the world. Now you're giggling, and I hope it's just because I look funny Because what I said is totally serious. That's why, as Christians, it has always been a part of our sacred tradition that human actions are exceptionally meaningful, even the smallest ones. And so within our history, we have pictures of people milking cows with joy because they see even that action has meaning in God's great world. I wasn't joking about the peanut butter sandwich. There is nothing trivial about human acts. There's nothing trivial. All acts, all thoughts, all speech shall be brought before the judgment throne of God. There's nothing trivial in human action, in our moral lives. The whole point is that our loyal labor today will in fact be used tomorrow, but you don't know how. You have to have faith and hope and love that God is going to gather all these things up and that maybe one day you'll be able to see how it all made a difference. Did Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, when they were in the middle of their lives, 
see that the actions, the loyal actions they were taking would result in God's plans for the installation of the Davidic Messiah? Did they see that it would result eventually in the installation of the great Messiah, Jesus Christ? The same is with us. Just as God gathered up the work of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, so too does God gather up our work. Who can speak of his wisdom and his excellencies? That's the conclusion that Paul draws in chapter 12 after he has this conversation with us in Romans. He moves into doxology, thinking about God pulling everything together for the establishment of his kingdom, every work of his people. I would encourage you to relook at Hebrews and the cloud of witnesses. Look at that as uh, those who, by way of the Spirit, are demonstrating loyalty to their God and their neighbor and how Christ is gathering all of those things up into his kingdom. God takes our good works done in Christ and by his Spirit, and like golden shimmering thread he knits it all across from his church across the globe he takes all of the threads and he knits the tapestry of history together which will consummate in the full kingdom of Jesus Christ when he returns you know maybe a good model I've said this a few times maybe a good model for us to have a clear vision of just how important you are in this world, especially under the sovereignty of God, is that picture of Jesus Christ who decides to break those loaves and feed the crowds, however many thousands, depending on the account. How is it that Christ feeds the world? Let's take it symbolically like it's the world and Christ is feeding them. He's the bread of life and he's feeding those crowds. How is it that he does that? Does Jesus, couldn't he, by way of his divine power, have, he doesn't even need to snap his fingers. Like snap his fingers and then they're full. Couldn't he have had the energy to go out and give a piece of bread to every single person that was in the crowd? But that's not how he acted. He gave it to his disciples, and his disciples spread it across the crowds. And it is the same model that is for today. People will be fed. His kingdom will grow as his disciples demonstrate loyalty under his sovereignty. Nothing has changed from Ruth even to this day. If anything, it has been more established to be the case. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Have you noticed that the world around us resembles the dark days of the judges? <laughs> Have you noticed famine, both literally and symbolically, in people's lives? Have you noticed that human beings feel empty and bitter? Have you noticed and witnessed the cruel treatment of children and women? I mention that because that's what we saw all the way across Judges. Are not the leaders today twisted, many leaders today, twisted and leading entire nations into a pit? Isn't that 
the dark days of the judges. And what about you personally? Is not life filled with confusion and pain and loneliness and sometimes hatred of yourself and sometimes feelings you can't explain, sometimes feelings that enrage you and quadruple the confusion? Let me ask you, what is the answer? Here's the question. What is the answer to the human condition? Not just the condition of Israel. What is the answer to the human condition, to your condition, to everybody you know? What is the answer to their condition? How will they escape the dark days of the judges? What we have seen in the book of Ruth is a twofold answer. But they come together. They dovetail. I'd encourage you to look up the wood joint called a dovetail. The first answer is the loyalty of us, the church. Without harming justification by faith, we must believe once again that our actions and agency actually matter. We are members of the body of Christ, and our labor is not in vain. He already promised that to you, brothers and sisters. Your labor is not in vain. Don't let Satan trick you, telling you that this is all worthless. And you're, and you're wasting your time. You are polishing the brass and rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. That is not true. And the second answer, which everything else depends upon, is our loyalty of God through Jesus Christ is the answer to the human condition. God used faithfulness, the faithfulness of the faithful, to usher in the last and true Davidic Messiah, Jesus, who is the Christ. The Father has given, him all, given all authority to him, and with that authority, he sends us and he uses our work to bring the world to rights. This is the whole point, my friends. Let's rescue the Great Commission from simple-minded evangelicalism. Let's rescue the Great Commission. We do not baptize people so that they can sit around waiting on Jesus. Jesus does not give that command within that passage. He says that we are to teach them to obey everything that he has commanded. Everything that he has commanded. And God will use all of our discipleship of the nations to bring fullness and joy to all of the nations. Not apart from the final triumph of Jesus Christ. We can't just put our heads together and make this world a better place. Jesus must act. But it's not in absence of our actions either. God will use all of our discipleship of the nations to bring fullness and joy to all of the nations. None of our Great Commission labor is in vain. We could put it that way. None of our Great Commission labor is in vain. So tell me today, where are you with the Great Commission? Do you have a simple-minded evangelicalism? Have you narrowed down the, uh, the bubble of what's included on teach them all that I have commanded you? Have you narrowed that down to where they just read their Bibles and they say their prayers? Or does it encompass all of life under the lordship of Jesus Christ? 
Because when it starts to encompass all of life, what you begin to see was a sapling little plant that accepted by faith through grace the name and true identity of Jesus Christ and his work. You start to see it grow up to be this tree and spread out its branches, bringing life and fruitfulness to the world. That can happen in our own children, or it can happen in our spiritual children, like we saw this morning. Where do you stand with the Great Commission? Do you take your own actions and inaction seriously within this larger total vision of the world? Well, let's walk away remembering this. God uses the loyalty of the church in his plans to establish the Davidic Messiah, who is Jesus Christ, and who brings peace to the whole world. Amen. Amen. Please pray with me.